Hi everyone. I might ask you all to take a seat if you haven't already and we'll, we'll begin. Oh, that was very good, thank you. <laughs> Hi, um, welcome. I'd like to welcome all of you. My name's Liz Knoll and I'm the Executive Director here at the Institute of Modern Art. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the unceded land which we gather and to acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. Um, and to all our First Nations friends from all over the country visiting here with us today, welcome. And I extend my deep respects to you. Uh, to everyone else, welcome for this in conversation between myself and Hadim Ali. I've had the distinct pleasure of knowing Karim as my colleague and friend for the past decade. And working together on this project, Invisible Border, has been a great honour and privilege. The, the exhibition is Karim's largest Australian solo exhibition to date and explores the normalisation of war and the experience of refugees through this phenomenal body of work, um, which includes these four embroideries. Karim's interest in tapestries developed soon after his parents' um, house in Kuwaita, Pakistan, was destroyed by a car bomb and amongst the rubble and debris that kind of was left over, a collection of rugs remained perfectly intact, um, miraculously able to withstand the terror that was kind of rained upon the community. Um, in, in all this, in this new large scale tapestry work and the other work um, in this exhibition, um, Kadim explore, explores the impact of war and trauma and displacement, drawing parallels from the Book of Shanama, Persian um, literature, uh, current politics, a whole range of sources which we'll get into today. A bit about Kadim. He was born in Kuwaita, Pakistan and currently lives in Sydney. Um, a masterful miniature painter, Kadim has attracted global renown and acclaim for his works which explore life in exile. He's exhibited at some of the world's most prestigious institutions, including the Guggenheim in New York, the Documenta, uh, Documenta the Venice Biennale, the MCA, Dhaka Art Summit, and we are very, very lucky to have him here um, exhibiting at the IMA. Please join me in welcoming Karim. <laughs> this, feels quite, this feels quite funny having this formal yeah. chit chat. Hello, hello. Uh, thank you very much, uh, everyone, for coming today. Um, of course, I'm a little bit nervous talking about my work every time, but yeah, it's. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for coming. Um, I want to start by asking a little bit about your, your, your personal experience, your life experience. Your work draws so much from global histories and experiences, but it's very much rooted in lived experience. Perhaps you could just start by telling us a bit about your life and how you've come to, to be in this room with us today. Um. I was born in the border of Pakistan with Afghanistan uh, in a town called Quetas, Quetta. It's now a city, uh, a very small town, uh, uh, which was uh, mostly uh, established during the colonization of India. There's a cantonment board there, mostly uh, it's a city of army. Um, but one of the reasons that some of the Hazaras stayed there is my grandfather who was uh, in the British army before the partition of Pakistan in India. After the partition, 
he chose to live in Pakistan, and even Pakistan, he chose to live with the border of Pakistan with Afghanistan. He was hoping someday Afghanistan would have a fair government. He would go back and claim his land back, which never happened. And today, um, uh, more than half a million Hazaras are living there. And while growing up there, we didn't have any TV or radio or any other source of entertainment. Uh, our nights were oriented with the stories. I remember my grandfather was singing this book called Shahnama. Shahnama was written in 1080 in the court of Mahmoud Ghaznavi in Afghanistan. It's an epic poem book. And uh, the book is all about the, the good and the bad side of humanity. There's a hero who fights the dark side of humanity. He fights demons in the, in the book. Um, growing up, listening to that stories, and um, uh, then slowly I found out that I... When I went to school, I found out that I'm, uh, I'm looking different to the other kids and uh, speaking different language. And they are looking at us differently. I was looking at them differently. But then went to higher school, then I realized that we are um, migrants and, um, and how, the, uh, how we are a minority. And I realized that how uh, I should be uh, behave myself as a minority among the majority. And um, then in 1994, uh, when Taliban established their uh, group in Afghanistan, Quetta was one of their major recruitment point, which is the border city of Pakistan and Afghanistan, where they recruiting mujahideens and sending them to Afghanistan. It was a time uh, when they were on their peak in 96 and 97. I, I left Quetta, uh, went into Iran, and then in Iran I started painting um, uh, uh, murals uh, of the propaganda murals, uh, working with a person who was doing propaganda murals, and he was so ashamed of himself to do that because his friends were uh, uh, making him embarrassed among his friends. So. So he asked me to do that because nobody would know me, nobody would embarrass me. So I started painting you know, propaganda murals, but then I was deported in 1998 back to Pakistan and then went to National College of Arts in Lahore. And um, after that, now I'm based in Sydney. <laughs> yeah. And that, I'm sure, was a long journey from there to Sydney. Um, you mentioned that you, you're Hazara, um, that you belong to the Hazara community. Perhaps you could speak a little bit about, I guess, um, the, the current um, experience for the Hazara community, both in Afghanistan, Pakistan, but all over the world is a very displaced um, people that have faced a lot of persecution. And also, I guess, the impact um, that the Taliban and the war in Afghanistan has had on that community for a long time now. Uh, Hazaras are, they were geographically, most of the Hazaras were based in the central Afghanistan. But, uh, but on one of the third major massacre that happened, uh, the third one happened in, in 1890s, uh, most of the Hazaras fled for their life. 62% of the Hazaras were massacred that, uh, in 1890s only. And it was a time that um, the Hazaras were or seeking asylum to the neighboring countries. And um, 
uh, now there's almost uh, close to a million Hazaras living in Pakistan and almost two million Hazaras living in Iran. And, um, but they are considered, they, as a Shia Muslim, which, is, which makes them minority in Afghanistan, and also their ethnicity uh, be more look like Asians than the, uh, the other Afghans in Afghanistan. So that we are also very, uh, uh, our features are very distinctive. Um, they're easily recognizable. And also in Pakistan, it's also easily recognizable. So when um, uh, the international arrived or came in Afghanistan, in 2000 and in year 2000, 2001, um, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, they moved to the border cities of Pakistan, they, and then they started um, finding Hazaras in Pakistan and started killing them. And the town that I was born, Quetta, since year 2000 and till today, like more than 2,000 Hazaras have been, have been killed and the government is, uh, the government of Pakistan is having a closed eye, a blind eye to this um, ongoing genocide. And same as in Iran, uh, the Hazaras are living you know, more than 50 years there. Um, they're still considered as, a, as refugees and they've been still, whenever they're getting caught, they're sending back to, or deporting them back to, to Afghanistan. Um, but then, being in Afghanistan, there is this uh, hidden or disguised or invisible border where they cannot avail most of the opportunities. So then they, uh, there's no other hope for them. And in, in consequence, more than 20% um, uh, of the Hazaras are living outside of the, uh, the Afghanistan, including Australia and many other European countries. Great. Well, you mentioned Invisible Border, which is the title of this exhibition. Um, so, as I said, um, Kinim and I have worked together for over many years now, and we first um, discussed this project, or I approached Kinim about having an exhibition at the IMA nearly two years ago now, and some of the works were conceived in partnership with the Lahore Biennale, these two works you see next to you. Um, but the really the opportunity um, from my perspective as the curator of the project was to, uh, I guess, map and chart the kind of transformation or acknowledge the transformation of Karim's work from very small miniature painting to these very ambitious large-scale tapestries, um, embroideries, I believe. One of them not here is 13 metres as well. So working at a very large scale and to go from such a small, fine medium, traditional medium to um, this, this scale is quite, it's monumental and that was really something when I was developing the exhibition with Kidium that I wanted to um, communicate through the install and the presentation, that the works um, are so monumental and are almost like giant history paintings that you need to stand back at and and look at and take in, but also um, up close there's exquisite detail um, and craftsmanship that you just, you want to experience and see in those works. And the hope is that you can have both of those encounters. And I think what's interesting about Kidim's work, these works, is that you, you did train as a miniature painter and 
you often use extremely fine paintbrushes, kitten hair paintbrushes, very detailed work. And although these are really large in scale, um, I don't think they've lost that kind of level of detail and care and attention. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about miniature painting and your experience miniature painting and how your practice has kind of moved, um, a, a, not away from that, but it's kind of expanded beyond that um, to incorporate installation, textile works, um, also sculpture. Uh, first, my, my first encounter with art was uh, the illustration of miniature painting, which was in the book of uh, King, the Shahnama book that my grandfather was singing for us. Uh, the copies of those illustrations when the heroes were in fight with the demon. Um, and that was, that actually turned my entire imagination, the, the landscape of my imagination, you know, the sky, the mountain, the land, the trees, the birds, the animals, and everything in the, in the painting were so stylized, it was so poetic, it was so two-dimensional, um, it was so dreamy, uh, and the style of painting with cubism. So my entire imagination was formed with that, uh, uh, with that miniature painting, which was done uh, in Herat, the western city of Afghanistan, and in the court of Safavids in Iran, and also in the court of Mughals in, in India. Um, in 1996, when I, when I arrived in Iran, someone actually showed me a book of Leonardo da Vinci. And then I came across the images of Western art, and I was like, wow, th this is very interesting. And then that led me to the, uh, to the entire Renaissance uh, style of paintings or paintings. And then while I was in Iran, when I was doing mural paintings there, um, it was very two-dimensional, flat paintings, it was a propaganda paintings, which was very much uh, post-Russian style, revolutionary style of uh, uh, propaganda posters. Uh, and then when I went back to Pakistan, uh, when I got scholarship at the National College of Arts, I found out that they offer miniature painting as a major. And um, I was so happy that there's something that um, that I was, you know, that, that's the medium of my imagination is now being offered as a major in, a, in an art school. So then I, I chose miniature painting as, a, as my major practice. And uh, after I graduated, I was, I, I kept practicing in miniature painting, which is very, very uh, precise, focused. Uh, it's, a, it's a courtly, bounded tradition. You can't you know, get out of certain um, restrictions in it. Uh, there are a bunch of miniature painters in Pakistan. They always discuss the, that, that tradition. There are people who still want, um, want to continue that the tradition. You can't actually you know, bring certain changes in this tradition, which, which I'm against of. I, I wanted to... I still want to be known as an artist, not to be labeled as miniature painter. Uh, so then I started uh, into explore myself in bigger works, and some of my friends were 
making these comments, oh, Kadim is doing big miniature paintings now. <laughs> so, uh, the, the foyer wall of the MCA that I painted uh, is quite, quite big. But, uh, but they were calling it big miniature painting and it was in terms of the details that I, that I, that I put in that wall. Uh, and also, in how did I end up in tapestry works? Uh, like I said, the, the studio that I have in Quetta, Pakistan, was the first uh, floor of the house of my parents, where all my works were stored in there. But on 31st of August in 2011, it was blown away by this car, suicide bomber. And thus, I lost everything, including the Shahnama that we had in the family, which was handwritten, and all of those uh, elements that my grandfather uh, brought with himself from Afghanistan uh, and the things that he had from India. So almost losing everything, uh, the only thing that was intact and, and, and survived was a pair of tapestry or a pair of rugs that was uh, given uh, to my mother as a gift from my uh, grandmother. And I was uh, having a studio in, in, in Kabul, which I st uh, still have it, and I was thinking that to switch into a medium, uh, a resilient medium that could survive a bomb blast. So then I switched into rug weaving. I became a rug weaver for a very long period. And then I found out that rug weaving uh, needs a bigger space. Um, and then you have to bring the weavers under one uh, surface or under one roof um, to work together, which was uh, practical and not practical at the same time in Afghanistan. Um, then I moved into embroidery, uh, which is much, much more easier. So you can give a piece of the work to an embroiderer she could take it home and then work at home and bring it back to you. Um, and then later you can um, assemble them and make a collage and, and create a bigger piece. So this is how I'm working now. I think it's um, interesting that you've, you know, you talked about miniature painting being, so, there's so many conventions around it and rules that you have to follow. And it is a very traditional art form as is you know, rug making and weaving and embroidery, these are all very traditional art forms. So in a way there is, though the scale is very different, there is a really clear kind of um, connection to those more traditional art forms. And I, I think a lot about with these works, the, um, you know, the Persian rugs that many of us have in our homes, but also um, Afghan war rugs, which as you mentioned before about mural paintings and Soviet mural paintings, um, and the Afghan war rugs that, um, have kind of been coming out of Afghanistan since the 1970s that are sort of uh, depict the apparatus of war and the changing nature of war. Um, you know, you can get uh, war rugs with uh, drones on them and 9-11, depictions of 9-11, and they were initially conceived as, kind of, I believe, like tourist items for the troops and the Soviets, but it's a tradition that's kind of continued. And I think you can see a lot of these white shapes that are kind of overlaid on these embroideries really reference those designs for me? Uh, the war started uh, at the refugee camps. And, and the imageries that evolve in the war, it's very, very organic. The imageries in those small 
uh, size of war rugs. I think it was a meter by a meter by 100 by 60 centimeter, um, which was um, which needed a very small loom in a in a in a tent where the refugees were living, and the kids were very much involved in, in those uh, in the weaving of those rugs. And the imageries came into those war rugs were actually the imageries that these kids were coming across in the school when the, their books was you know, A for Allah, J for Jihad, and K for Klashenkov. And, and the math book was um, one, one grenade, two, two grenades, and three, three bullets, four, four rifles, and that's, it's, it's gone to the 10. And the questions were, or, or the problem was if you, kill 10 uh, communists out of 20 communists, how many communists survived? So these were the problems. And then these kids actually brought those images from their books, and it was transferred from the book into the, into, into the tapestries. But later on, some of the entrepreneurs came in, and then they, uh, they made an entire factory and then they're still working on that now. It's, it's very, very commercial now, mm. but the early war rugs that, was, um, that started uh, in 1980s, early 1980s, were the, the words that were very, very organic. And, you know, it's seemingly very innocent in that sense, coming from the minds of children, but also very political um, acts, and I think uh, you know, that's obviously, we talk a lot about uh, the personal being political and your work is very political um, and that's challenging, I imagine, um, growing, living in, uh, on, the, in, on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan and having deep connections with those communities um, and speaking about, you know, the truths that you, that you speak to uh, are, are hard truths that a lot of people don't want to see that are very complicated um, and very layered and very traumatizing. I'm interested in how, you know, thinking about you being a young mural painter in Iran, painting propaganda murals, to going to study miniature painting in Lahore, and then to be kind of depicting Donald Trump with a clown wig on is um, a journey, I guess, and I'm interested in when you kind of realised or started thinking about bringing these political ideas into your work and your practice. I'm still reluctant to call myself an artist because um, I always think that I, I have this diary which is visual diary and I'm recording those, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a diary uh, on a daily basis and I'm recording my time, my era on my own diary. Um, and, and it's dealing with my own history, dealing my own my, my inner contradiction um, with the with the uh, election or the presidential election of America. I was um, uh, very hopeful about the situation in Afghanistan. I was thinking that eventually or finally I'll get you know, some, some kind of peace in Afghanistan and I'll be able to practice my art in Afghanistan. But that turned out into a, a, a modern melancholia where, 
which, which made me more uh, hopeless and disappointed from the future, not only future of Afghanistan, not only future of my, the surrounding of my studio in Afghanistan, but, but anywhere, anywhere you live, you could you know, open up the TV or the news channel that are talking about Donald Trump and how he was treating um, the rest of the world and, and, and what impact he put actually in the political diagram of the world was pretty, uh, pretty hopeless. And then he brought the Taliban, who the American or the internationals were fighting in Afghanistan, and their slogan was, was uh, human right, children right. And then he brought them back into the power now. And uh, the internationals and with the Taliban are now on, on one table and talking about the peace and trying to, to rule Afghanistan again. Do you, you, you know, we've spoken about your work in the past and at times exhibiting it in countries, the sensitivity around getting it to Australia if it's been made in your studio in Kabul, in Afghanistan, and the political content in your work. Um, do you ever feel anxiety about ex uh, speaking about these issues or um, do you feel that it's a duty to kind of shed light on some of these things that have been both a personal experience and collective experience? Well, I only feel this responsibility or a duty whenever my work is on the wall in a gallery. Before that, I don't think about that, that responsibility at all. Thus, I'm very uh, nervous or reluctant to talk about these works, like the work on, your, uh, on my right and on your left um, is the work which was uh, uh, a Donald Trump in the middle. And every day when I was looking at Donald Trump, I was like, uh, I will never ever displayed in a gallery where people would target me or not. So, um, and then I, I opened this work in my studio in, in Sydney, and I didn't feel like going into the studio. Uh, I covered his face for a very long period, and I, I tried to cover his face, which is still visible <laughs> as Donald Trump, but, but, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's very personal. Uh, personal practice, I think. It's, it's very much like, like a personal religion. It's a very, very personal uh, conversation with your own self. I, am all, I try not to think about the, uh, the final in a presentation of the work, but try not to think about it, what would I say when I display it in the gallery. Uh, and then when the work is finished, then there's another anxiety starts after that. How would I face the audience about my work? Yeah. Very well, I would think. Um, let's talk about that work, Invisible Border One, because it was quite funny. I was getting photos on WhatsApp of the work in development and could very clearly see Scott Morrison and Donald Trump. And then when the work arrived in Sydney, <laughs> we opened it up and there's all these clown hairs and noses all over the work and you were just like, I can't, I can't look at these people anymore. It was quite a violent and absurd act at the same time. Um, but what really interests me about this work, I think, and a lot of the, the tapestries, uh, the embroideries in this exhibition, is a kind of um, melding, I guess, of or layering of different references and cultural references, stories, um, objects from the British Museum, so as, a, as, as an example, it would be a wonderful if you could share maybe the story of this work, the original story um, of the emperor and how you've reinterpreted that for this particular work. Uh, 
Yeah, the reference that I took from this work is a, is a Mughal king who, uh, in 16th century, who is weighing his princess, prin no, Prince Khurram, with gold, and he's giving that gold away. And uh, then I, I was looking at that, that the king is standing on the symbol of, uh, of peace, which was a symbol of a lion and a, and a lamb next to each other. Uh, and then at the same time, I was thinking about the, the peace deal in Afghanistan. And, uh, and uh, I was thinking that the Taliban, you know, whatever, how the Taliban came into the, in, into the surface, they, uh, they are children of the West. And uh, they, they were the people who were uh, created by the, the Westerners in Afghanistan to fight the, the Russians, to fight the Soviets at that time. And then when, when, Soviet, when Soviet, they uh, collapsed or they evacuated Afghanistan, these uh, organizations or these uh, terrorist organizations were left with no, no exit, with no plan ahead after that. And then tons and tons of weapons uh, came under their control and they were left doing their own, they were left there with their own faith, which they started playing with the, with the faith of the minorities in Afghanistan. Um, so then, all of a sudden, Donald Trump adopted them again, again, and then bringing them back into the power. Um, uh, I was trying to give them a, a presentable, uh, look or was something that people could uh, could look at or something that they um, they could fit into the the style of the art otherwise it's very difficult to bring you know or to paint or to draw the the the, the piece table it, it is very ugly and uh, it is very difficult to d depict this entire concept of peace deal is very ugly mm -hmm. and the entire concept of this peace deal is very ugly and uh, being an artist is very difficult to to sugarcoat them visually uh, to make them presentable mm -hmm. you mentioned um, I guess the I mean I think that work and you mentioned the the original story um, of the Emperor weighing his son on his 15th birthday and giving out the coins to the community as a, a kind of the, the village, I guess, as a kind of act of charity and celebration. And in this work, you know, Donald Trump is weighing uh, a leader of the Taliban for, for bags of money while other leaders, uh, global leaders, look on. And, you know, it says a lot, I think, about the economics of war and war profiteering um, that goes on across the world. And it also makes me think of the work herbicide next door, in the room next door, which is an existing work that you've kind of reimagined, I guess. It's an old work, but a new work um, for this exhibition. And the work depicts five, uh, 11 horns, um, uh, metal horns in the space that play uh, fundamentalist uh, Taliban um, propaganda CDs that you can buy in Kabul. Um, and Behind each of those horns is a series of uh, Persian rugs and uh, circuitry patterns that start on the rugs and kind of sprawl out like a network, like a metro 
metro line um, across the the room, and we spoke a lot about um, the you know the changing nature of vocations and people's work um, in Afghanistan um, and this transition from I guess traditional crafts making tradition traditional crafts making a living from that to being able to make a living through uh, war um, and electronics and circuitry perhaps you could speak a little bit about um, that work and that kind of shift that's happened is happening in Afghanistan and elsewhere across South Asia and the Middle East uh the work here beside is a collaborative work between uh, Asad Buddha, Shirley, and myself. And we wanted to bring another um, an, an iconic uh, Hazara singer, Dawood Sarkhosh, to, in, into that piece. Um, uh, it is a, a combination of almost everything. Um, the, the horns are, are redesigned. Uh, and the, the references of the design into the horn uh, uh, coming from the war helmet, the Islamic war helmet, which is very flamboyant with the Islamic patterns in it. And the sound that is playing in each and every horn is the sound of a propaganda songs of Taliban, which uh, uh, they started distributing in 2018 after the, the first uh, peace talk. Uh, and then my assistant and myself, we collected some of those CDs uh, of the Taliban propaganda songs. And I took all those songs uh, in a set with a, uh, with a sound designer and, and tried to design them into um, a, an ordinary person's ear when they're walking around those uh, distribution center. Every distribution center uh, was playing a different uh, song of the Taliban. Uh, for me, it was very difficult to, to play with sound, with song. So that's how I wanted to bring Dawood uh, Sarkhosh uh, uh, in it to get involved in it. But, but of course, he, uh, he, he's, he, he sings beautiful songs. He composed beautiful songs. And it was very, very ugly uh, 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 propaganda songs for him to get involved with that. Uh, I, I could tell them that he didn't want to involve in that, uh, but at the same time, he really wanted to involve in that. And then Asad Buddha, who is a writer, he, he wrote the, the text of the herbicide. Uh, and herbicide means the killing of a city. Um, so the entire text, it's very, very poetic. So if you uh, scan the QR code, you can uh, get to read the, the text of the herbicide. And the circuitry, uh, on the wall, the, cir the circuit style or the circuitry style uh, design on the wall is uh, designed by the uh, Afghan artist Sher Ali, who is making a statement of the uh, the mujahideen used to, mujahideen's jacket jacket in 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 1970s when they were fighting the Russians, their jackets were uh, designed you know, with the golden thread and there's the glasses in there. That's very common and traditional Afghan jacket, but now the Taliban are wearing plain, very plain black and, or white clothings. And then he was thinking, where are all those uh, glittery or golden threads and, and the mirror gone? And then he designed it into the circuitry that what actually made them to uh, not wear any 
traditional design clothings. Um, and he symbolically you know, took all those uh, uh, golden threads and mirrors and he turned it into a circuit board, a circuitry, uh, to make a statement about that how the Taliban are into technology now, how their medium has been changed, and how they are making now you know, a time bomb or explosive, time bases, explosives, and uh, how they are dealing with the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the modern medium of the war. And um, um, it's now, the, the one that I'm displaying now is herbicide two. It is a little bit modified version of the herbicide one that I showed at the Sharjah Binale. Yeah. Every time we speak, um, oh, for so many years, I always learn something new about the work, uh, which is one of the things that I, I really um, love the most about Kadim's work is, as I said earlier, the layering of um, histories and, and culture and religion and... Um, your experiences and geopolitics, it's very vast and um, can be very complicated but uh, worth spending time with and unpacking. I want to open up to questions in the audience soon but I'm conscious of time. Um, but I did want to talk about the first uh, work in the exhibition, Sermon on the Mount, which is a very large-scale uh, tapestry um, in the first room uh, that depicts um, a koala atop a hill speaking or to a, a, a group of animals fleeing towards a mountain. Um, it's an it's a incredible work um, and a very accomplished work. And again, having known you for a long time, seeing your work evolve both materially but also seeing you you incorporate these kind of very quotidian Australian archetypal kind of figures into your work has been something really that I've really enjoyed watching and, and seeing it started with eucalypt and now this really has so many animals, a cast of kangaroos and koalas. And when I spoke to you about that, I, I was like, how does this work relate to you as someone that has lived in exile and has has felt very displaced um, because the work is is really speaking about the black summer bushfires um, last year uh, and and you were able to talk to me about that and and so eloquently and and how you see what is happening here um, in Australia with the fires and climate catastrophe more broadly and um, perhaps you could speak a little bit about that work and that connection it was 2019, when this, the end of 2019, when I started looking at the news, I was not in Australia, but I was looking at the news of the, the bushfire, seeing the distressed animals were running after life, uh, after their lives. And uh, uh, it was very disturbing to see a koala uh, you know, walking very, uh, fast or very quickly trying to, you know, to, how to say that, to run away from their life. But for me, the, the Australian native animal will always been a question to my childhood stories. Uh, when I first saw the images of uh, koala, I was not in Australia at that time, 
or kangaroo. It was a time when uh, you know, my grandfather was, uh, uh, was singing um, the stories from Anwar Suhaili or Kalila Indimna, which is a book uh, written almost 2,000 years ago in India. And then it was translated in Ghazni uh, by uh, uh, someone at the court of uh, <laughs> Sultan Mahmoud Ghaznavi. I forgot his name. Um, the king was thinking that it's a very, very important book to know, um, to, to know the animals, to uh, the other, other living beings too. Um, he was thinking that it, is, it will make him the king of the animals too. Uh, but which is now still in Afghanistan. The book is read to the children and almost uh, people living in the rural areas. They know about Kalila and Demna's story. Uh, I again asked my uh, my friend Asad Buddha to let's um, uh, let's think about uh, the the epic animals and the, the fictitious animals like phoenix or dragon uh, in terms of extinction, uh, symbolically extinctions of these uh, the tradition, and uh, and then he. Uh, He's a very close friend of mine. He said, ah, just shut up. Let's just think about the, the animals who are now at the verge of extinction. Let's, let's talk about koala. Let's talk about kangaroos. And then uh, we, uh, after, like we worked after, like we worked for two months, and after two months, we came up uh, with a text called Sermon on the Mount. And the work there is, um, is an illustration of that that story, mm. yeah. And also, um, you mentioned uh, the other day that Kalila and Dimna, the title kind of translates to the world of animals, is that? Yeah. But it doesn't have um, Australian animals. In yeah, it. it doesn't have Australian animals, so th that's why we wanted to add Australian animal in that. It was the world of animal without Australian animals were, for, it, for a person like me living in Australia, my world should have Australian animals in that too. But the title Sermon in the Mount was because I went to Christian school in Pakistan and uh, one of the uh, first or significant uh, lessons from Bible in our school was Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes in the mountain and then um, talks about hope for the future. And here a koala in the story of Sermon on the Mount, uh, a koala is giving a speech about the hopelessness, about the, the again, the, the modern melancholia, uh, that how the animals of uh, uh, Australia is on the verge of extinction, and then they are talking about possible migration, and also questioning that if human beings are so strict to their own species in terms of borders and other restrictions, that how would they receive animals as refugees? And, um, we're talking about the, the corporation. Um, back in, in the war-torn countries where the, their countries are on fire, um, like Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan, these fires have been caused by the, the terrorist organization, but, but what would you call those corporations who have been caused this climate change and the smoke and fire? What would you call them? That, that's the entire story is about. Thank you. I could, we could just chat all day. Um, we might leave it there. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you, Khirim, for your, your amazing work and 
it's been such a delight to work with you on this project and Pleasure. over many years um, it's been a, it's been a true privilege and um, we feel very lucky to have this exhibition here at the IMA um, please everyone if you could join me in thanking Hadi Mali. thank you thank you, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming today.